Psalm 72 says of Solomon, uh, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Uh, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings bow, uh, fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy he sa- and saves the lives uh, of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains, may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever and his fame continue as long as the sun May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. As your psalmist says elsewhere, as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And we ask this morning that you would work in us what's pleasing in your sight. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And give us grace uh, to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, this great psalm of David, uh, when you first, at first blush, when you read it, it appears to be about uh, David's son Solomon. It actually says the, the title or the prescript says of Solomon. That also could be translated to Solomon. Uh, some have suggested that Solomon wrote it because the same Hebrew construction elsewhere where it says like of David uh, means David wrote it. And so here uh, some, some scholars have tried to decide if it's about Solomon or if it's written by him. I think it's pretty clear it's written by David about Solomon especially with the very last verse saying it was uh, by this psalm, the prayers of David are are ended, uh, which also tells us this is a prayer. In many ways, a lot of the psalms are are, uh, even in part or in whole uh, prayers. Well, if you know about Solomon, how long did Solomon reign? Solomon reigned for about 40 years over all of Israel. His was the last of the kings, uh, really was very short-lived, actually, Saul, David, and Solomon of the United Kingdom, not the UK, but the United Kingdom of, of Israel, with the northern and southern tribes united together. After Solomon, what happened? You had the divided kingdom, the north and the south. That's why the rest 
of the Old Testament history is sometimes so confusing when you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It's almost like the old saying about a baseball game. You have to have a scorecard in front of you to see which, you know, which guy is this and where is he reigning and how long is he reigning. And it's why you have overlapping kings in, in the southern and northern kingdoms. Now, Solomon in his reign was kind of the high point of Israel as far, as far as the monarchy went. It was the glory days of the monarchy in Israel, but they were very short lived. Uh, and at various points, if you read this psalm, as we've read it a couple times so far in the service this morning, I think it becomes pretty clear that the language used here, if it were used of Solomon, would be very hyperbolic. It would be an exaggeration to the extreme to say that these things were literally true of Solomon. And now, you know, we, we have often, in, even in modern politics, we tend to use uh, kind of exaggerated language about our politicians. Now, I remember when uh, Barack Obama was running for president and people were using language like the seas were going to recede and you know, that the birds were going to sing, the heavens were going to open up. We do that on both sides of the aisle. We, we tend to overstate the abilities of mere men, even those whom God has put in, in place in high position of authority. Uh, but this psalm, ultimately, although it is about Solomon to some degree, it's really about David's greater son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Psalm 72 speaks of the reign of the glorified Christ, who is the son of David, as one of his titles uh, is the son of David. Um, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and not Solomon, whose reign or dominion, as verse 8 says, will extend, what, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Solomon never reigned to the ends of the earth. No Israelite king reigned anywhere close to that. As the hymn writer uh, Isaac Watts puts it, the song we're going to sing as our closing hymn this morning, uh, he says, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. That's, that's Christ's kingdom. And, and Isaac Watts was surely right to see that as spoken of here in our text in Psalm 72. Now, the psalmist also speaks in verse 11 of all kings falling down before him and all nations serving him. Now, the reign of Jesus Christ, unlike that of Solomon, Solomon's reign was a shadow or a type of the reign of Christ. It was analogous to what to the greater reign of Christ who was to come. Uh, but Jesus Christ's reign, unlike that of Solomon, was going to be and will be universal in scope. No limit to its extent. It will be eternal in scope. There will be no limit to its extent or its duration. It will never end. If you know Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, uh, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, here it is, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, we, we've had uh, over the years a number of times we have had reason to reference Psalm 2. I won't quote it for you this morning, but Psalm 2 is a picture. Uh, it speaks of the reign of Christ. It tells it tells the rulers of the earth and the kings of the earth who set themselves together in kind of a plot against the Lord and against his anointed. That's his Messiah, his king, saying they were going to burst his bonds apart. They weren't going to have him rule over them. And it talks about 
Christ dashing them to pieces with an iron scepter. Like, that's the kind of reign he has. It doesn't always look like it to us. And it even warns not just regular people. It warns the kings and rulers of the earth to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. It's about the reign of Christ as king. Every knee one day will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess Christ as Lord. They may not all do it now. They don't all do it willingly, certainly. But one day they will do so and be forced to do so. All kings, all kings, the most important, powerful people in the world, will bow before Christ. And even now, all nations are in the process of of being made disciples of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. That all nations, what, what does that remind you of? The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, where Jesus says, kind of like this psalm, all authority has been what? Given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? Of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And what does he say? Lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. You know, just as his reign, the psalm says here in verse 8, that his reign is going to extend, what, to the ends of the earth. Where does the gospel go? Where did Jesus command his gospel to go? Acts 1.8. They were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you read the book of Acts, I've said this a number of times, the book of Acts is, is showing Jesus conquering the world through the gospel. And Acts 1.8 that I just quoted is really an outline, so to speak, or, or a programmatic statement of what you see in the rest of the book of Acts, which never could have happened if it was left up to us. Acts, humanly speaking, makes no sense. If it was left to a bunch of fishermen uh, to conquer the world with the gospel, it would have died out a, pr- a very early death. And yet what do you see happening? You see the gospel in the book of Acts because of the power of the ascended Christ through his Holy Spirit working through the church, going from Jerusalem to all Judea to all Samaria. And then finally, where do you find Paul at the end of the book of of Acts? Rome. No Internet, no telephone, no airplanes, no modern anything for communication. And yet the gospel went in 30 years, maybe, give or take a few, from Jerusalem all the way to to the seat of the, the civilized world at the time, Rome, and it's been going to the ends of the earth ever since. Charles Hodge, some of you might know who that is, 19th century Presbyterian theologian, professor of Princeton at Princeton Theological Seminary back when it was in its heyday, had the following to say about Psalm 72. He says, the the 72nd Psalm contains a description of an exalted king and of the blessings of his reign. These blessings are of such a nature as to prove that the subject of the psalm must be a divine person. The subject of this psalm is, therefore, the redeemer of the world. There's no question what this psalm, who this psalm, rather, is about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign as God's anointed king, the Messiah. Now, the things, again, that are spoken here, if you were to take them literally, would be an exaggeration, to say the least. If spoken about any, any, any earthly human king, such as Solomon, but when it comes to Christ's reign, they are fulfilled literally. They are fulfilled, in, much of this is fulfilled in a literal fashion as far as the extent and glory and duration of his, of his reign. So 
This psalm ultimately has to be understood as descriptive and predictive of the reign of Jesus Christ from the right hand of God the Father Almighty, even until and including when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Now, uh, the Hebrew of this psalm, uh, I'll freely confess that Hebrew is not my strong suit. Uh, it takes me a lot, hard, long, lot more time to try to work through Hebrew. I know friends uh, from seminary who say the exact opposite. I've always been jealous of them. Oh, the Hebrew is so easy. Well, the, the Hebrew, if you have more than one translation at home, uh, I know some, some of you may have that, and I think that's helpful. If you were to read, let's say, the ESV, as we read today, and maybe some of you have that in front of you, the King James, the New American Standard, you will probably notice that it's variously translated in some way, that there's, there's little shades of difference. And one of those shades of difference is that much of the psalm in some translations is rendered as, as a request or as a prayer, and other parts, other translations, render it as a prophetic statement. In other words, uh, the ESV renders much of this psalm as a prayer or request. Look at verse 8. How does it say? It says, may he... It's Christ. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The King James puts it this way. Rather than may he, it says he shall. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Kind of reminds you of the, the language of Revelation. You know, the, uh, he shall reign forever and ever. It's, it's, a, it's a statement of predictive prophecy. So how... You know, given the fact that so many good translations differ in these slight ways, how are we to understand these verses in this psalm? Are they are they requests, prayers, or are they prophetic statements? Well, I'm going to cheat this morning and say that, that it's both. How's that? I, I play it safe and say it's both. Um, I think in this case it may not be necessary to choose this or see it as an either-or question. I think we are certainly taught in the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed. What's one of the things we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom what? Come. Now, you know, in English, even in the King James, it doesn't always sound like a request. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that when I was a kid, I grew up uh, in a Methodist church. and we, we recited the Lord's Prayer on a pretty regular basis. I thought the whole first part of the, of, of the Lord's Prayer was just a statement of facts. It was just like a it's, high, it's a big, long address to God. Uh, letting him know things he already knows. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I always thought it was strange. Why do we have to tell God in prayer that his name is hallowed? Well, it wasn't until later I realized it's a request. It's let your name be hallowed. And so your kingdom come is a request. It's not saying, yes, Lord, your kingdom will come. Now I can pray and give you my request. No, it's let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is done in, in heaven. And so, I think it's not an either-or thing. Just as in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray that God's kingdom might come, that Christ's kingdom might come. Uh, in the same way, we're taught elsewhere in Scripture that his kingdom will come. And so, you know, it's said, it's said in the Bible that if you, if you pray anything according with, to God's will, we know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, we know we have the things that we have requested. And so the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray in accordance with God's will. And one of the chief things we pray for is that Christ's kingdom will come, that it will be brought to its glorious fulfillment, so that every knee bows and every tongue will confess. We know that will happen, and yet God still can, tells us and commands us, teaches us to pray for that. And so we should pray for that much more probably than many of us do. Um, but the very certainty of the fact that it will come should actually encourage us to pray for it, not cause us to be lax in praying for it. 
We should say, I know God wants this to happen. God is going to make this happen. And so when he commands us to pray for it, we should be more and more encouraged to persevere in praying for it. And why is that? Well, why do we need that? Because it doesn't always look like his kingdom's coming. I don't know about you, but the more I look around at society around us, the more I think things feel like they're spiraling out of control. And yet, what does the Bible say? His reign will be an eternal dominion. It'll have no end of the increase of his government and his power. There should be no end. But it doesn't always feel like that. And so we are encouraged, I think, by God's promises and his prophecies to pray in accordance with that and pray for his kingdom to come. You know, we don't have to wonder about whether or not it's the will of God that the kingdom of his son would come and come to pass and be built. It is, and so it will, and so we should be encouraged to pray and persevere in praying for it. May we learn to pray even as we're taught, as we, as we prayed this morning, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, um, this is a long psalm, and I'm not going to be able to unpack uh, in one Sunday all the details of it. I won't uh, make you sit here for three hours while I try to do that. Um, but what we're going to do this morning, Lord willing, is kind of unpack some of the highlights of the psalm, some of the peaks, mountaintops, so to speak, of the psalm, and then, Lord willing, offer some exhortations uh, of what we are to do uh, in light of the truths spoken of in this wonderful messianic psalm. So um, the first thing I want to look at is the nature of Christ's reign. We're going to spend most of our time on looking at what David says about that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit teach us and prophesy to us about the reign of Christ? He talks about the nature and the characteristics of Christ's reign and his in his commentary on the Psalms, Charles Spurgeon quotes another writer as singling out four notable characteristics. There could be more, but at least four characteristics of Christ's present and future reign in glory. And he kind of uses them. We're going to roughly do the same thing. He kind of uses them as an outline of the psalm. So I, I won't do that too strenuously this morning. But uh, the first thing that he points out in the, in the first seven verses of the psalm is that the Christ's present and future reign in glory is righteous. His reign is a righteous reign. The word righteousness shows up three times in the opening three verses. It shows up again in verse 7, the word righteous. So it's clearly the theme of the first part of the psalm. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, give the king your justice or your judgments, O God, and your what? Your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with what? Righteousness and your poor with justice. So give him righteousness that he might what? Judge with righteousness. And then it says in verse 3, Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. So righteousness is one of the key aspects or key uh, characteristics of the reign of Jesus Christ as our King of kings and Lord of lords, as God's anointed king. Now, I don't think it should be very difficult for us to see why that's such an important aspect of Christ's reign as our king. You know, we have, um, I don't want to get political here, but we have various expectations, uh, some good, some bad, some false, some, some good, uh, some kind of un, unreasonable, of our politicians, of those who would govern over us or rule over us in some ways. But what, what is the one thing you want of those who govern over us more than anything else, if not that they would do so in righteousness. If you could have one thing out of a person who is elected to public office, 
in our country or if you're in some other country who is, is, you know, put in power in some other way, wouldn't it be that they do so with justice, with real true truth and justice and righteousness according to God's word? What else could you possibly want than that? Because if you have that, everything else falls into place. Well, I dare say it's a rarity these days. Maybe it always has been that we see such a thing. You know, what do you want more out of politicians and statement, you know, statesmen, elected officials, judges, members of Congress, mayors, governors and presidents? Uh, you know, what is it that uh, that grieves you more about many of them more than the fact that so many of them do what they do in an unrighteous way, that they do what's evil in God's sight? And in some sense, you know, they they do these sins as representatives of us. They, their sins, in some ways, are leading sins. When you read the history of the Old Testament of the kings, especially in Chronicles and Kings, you would read statements like so-and-so, I'm, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing from memory, so-and-so did what was right in the sight of God, even as David, his father, did, and not perfectly, and God blessed them. God blessed the nation on behalf of what the king did. And then on the other side of the coin, which seems more often than not, this king did what was evil in the sight of God, followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, a wicked king, and led the people into idolatry. And what does God do? God chastises. Sin matters. Sin in our government <laughs> matters. They are leading sins. The things that people in our governments do that lead us either towards or away from God's will, uh, these things matter a great deal. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the wicked rule, the people groan. That's not just some Old Testament truth. That's a truth even now. When the wicked rule, the people groan, but not so the reign of Christ. Proverbs 16.12 says this. It's an abomination to kings to do evil. Why? For the throne is established by righteousness. Christ's throne is established by righteousness, perfect righteousness. Whatever he does is right and true and just. His ways are all perfect he judges, verse 2 says, he judges God's people with righteousness. He defends the cause of the poor. He crushes the oppressor, verse 4. In his days, verse 7 says, the righteous flourish and peace abounds. Now, when it says in verse 2, he judges God's people with righteousness, when we hear the word judge, my guess is most of us think of it with a negative overtone. Judges his people? What do you mean? Why, why would you want Jesus to judge his people? No, it's just like the judges before the kings in the Old Testament. The judges were those who delivered the people. So for Christ to judge on behalf of his people in righteousness is to do what's right and what is good for his people. Many of God's deliverances of his people in the Old Testament, as well as in the cross, came through judgments. How did he free the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt? By sending judgments upon Egypt. That is how God does these things. That's how God has saves his, his people. The second aspect of Christ's reign that the psalmist points out is that Christ's reign is universal. Christ's reign is universal. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, may he have dominion, what, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him Tribute may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings 
fall down before him, all nations serve him. The King James, as I already uh, mentioned, uh, render verse 8, he shall have dominion. In other words, it's a future tense, it's a prophetic statement, it's a promise of what God is going to do. He shall have dominion. And even now, what has Christ said in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Reminds me of what the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. And Hebrews cites another psalm that talks about the reign and authority of Christ. Uh, but Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2, 8, and 9. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, him is Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. It's, it's referring to, to Psalm 8. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what does he say? He quotes and expounds, the writer of Hebrews does, Psalm 8, which talks about God putting all things under the feet of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left what? Nothing, nothing outside his control. But then he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There's, there's the tension between the eyes of faith and the eyes of doubt and, and of, of the world. It doesn't look all the time like he's reigning over all things, but he is. One day we will all see it for what it is, but that's not yet. But he is still reigning right now. We are not waiting, as many claim dispensationalists and others, we're not waiting for Christ's reign to start. He's reigning right now. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story of the book of Acts. It's certainly the story of the book of Revelation. He's ruling over all things for the sake of his church now. He's reigning over all things. All things have been placed in subjection to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we don't see everything that way right now. And so even if it doesn't always look like all things are subjection to him, they are. One day that universal rule of Christ will be made manifest for all to see. And he will, as the psalmist says, he will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Think about that. What was what was the land of promise that the the patriarchs were promised in Israel? Was it from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth? Not 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 so called. But what where's Christ's reign going to extend to? Everywhere. It's it's the same thing God promised Abraham. In you all the nations shall be blessed, and in your seed. That was the promise given way back to the patriarch Abraham. Christ is even now conquering and will conquer all of his enemies and ours so that all the kings and all nations will bow down to him and serve him. Revelation 6, 1 to 2 says this. Now I watched, John says, when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. You know, many commentators, they're divided on that, but many, including William Henderson, see that as a picture of Christ. He is given a crown and a bow, and he came out on a white horse, conquering and to conquer. That's what he's doing even right now. How is Jesus Christ presently conquering the nations? 
through his gospel, through the preaching of his gospel, he is making disciples of all the nations through the church proclaiming his gospel. But even now, through the gospel, Jesus, the king, is subduing all of his enemies to himself. Many of those are through conversion, and some of those are obviously through judgments. So I'll ask this morning, are, are you ever discouraged about how things are going? I know I am. Are you discouraged at times? Does it look like nothing good is happening or that Christ and his people are losing rather than conquering? That is the temptation for us in many ways throughout the, the church, the church's history. But if you're discouraged, look again at Psalm 72 and other passages like it that speak of the universality of Christ's reign. It's a sure thing that Christ will reign over all things and that reign has already begun. The third thing, Christ's reign is beneficent. It's beneficent. As the great hymn writer we already quoted, Isaac Watts puts in our closing hymn, one of my favorite verses of the psalm, he says, Blessings abound wherever he reigns. The prisoner leaps to lose his chains. The weary find eternal rest, and all the sons of want are blessed. A paraphrase of part of Psalm 72, but blessings abound wherever he reigns. You know, everywhere the gospel throughout history, everywhere the gospel has taken hold, blessings have abounded. Even blessings in this life have abounded wherever his gospel has taken hold. History teaches us this as well as the scriptures do, if we have the eyes of faith to see it. It's easy for us, I think, in our day, in our age, to lose sight of what the world looked like before Christ came. The world was a pagan, dark, wicked place before Christ came. The gospel in the Old Testament in some ways was limited, rather limited geographically to that one small strip of land in modern day Israel. It had its, its, you know, goings out here and there, went to Nineveh and other places, but for the most part, that's where it was. And the rest of the world was in utter darkness and paganism and unbelief. It was the, Satan reigned in many ways over all of the known world at that time, but when Christ came, it didn't take long for the gospel to turn the world upside down, did it? Or rather, right side up, you could say, in some ways. The freedoms, the blessings that we've seen in, in various countries have come through the gospel. And as, as countries turn to Christ, blessings abound. And as they turn away from Christ, as we're seeing in our own country and Canada and elsewhere right now, those blessings cease and chastisements start to come, but blessings abound where Christ reigns. And so where the gospel goes forth, good things go forth for everyone involved. Everywhere the gospel of Christ has gone forth in the power of God. Paganism, idolatry, superstition, wickedness, and misery have waned and been subdued. Everywhere the gospel has taken root, freedom has blossomed and tyranny has been restrained. On the other side of that coin, everywhere the gospel has been turned away from has tended back towards tyranny and misery and sin and darkness and paganism. We're seeing in, in our own country a rise in paganism. And why is that? Because we've turned away from God. Why do people idolize the state as their only hope? That's what the leftists do. Some on the right do as well because they've turned away from God and Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings, and Lord of Lords. When you fear God, you stop fearing man quite as much. When you stop seeing when you stop seeing God as your hope, you look for someone else who can't deliver to put your hope in. 
Well, the fourth, fourth thing, and finally, Christ's reign is perpetual. It's endless. Verse 5 says, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Verse 17, likewise, May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. There it is again. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. So there will be no limit, there will be no end to the reign of Christ. His dominion will be an eternal dominion. His kingdom is forever. All the kingdoms of this world, whether great or small, will pass away. Every single one without exception has. Every one without exception will. Ours is no exception to that rule. But Christ's kingdom is eternal. We are, we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot fail, will not fail, and will endure forever. Isaiah 9-7 says this. We read this at Christmas time normally, but he says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be what? No end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of God's armies. The host is is God's army. It's a military picture. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will see to it. God, God has zeal for the kingdom of his son, and he will see to it that his kingdom is forever and growing. The kingdom of Christ will know no end, and all of this is in accordance with God's promise to David back in 2 Samuel 7, that he would establish the throne of his descendant forever. You know, when you read that promise, that we call it the Davidic covenant, and you read the story of Solomon, if you could, if you could pretend your brain was an etch-a-sketch and, you know, shake your head and pretend you've never read 1st and 2nd Samuel, and you read that promise that God gives, the Lord gives to David, that he was going to establish the throne of his descendant and his, his dominion would be forever, you'd think, wow, this Solomon guy is going to be something else. And he was, but then it wouldn't take long for you to say, wait a minute, I'm not good at math, but 40 years doesn't sound like forever. And the kingdom was divided after. It was a hint. It was a hint that that's not the one that was promised. Solomon was not the one ultimately that was promised, nor was his kingdom the one that was in view here and in that covenant God made with David. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself whose kingdom was established in righteousness. Now, in conclusion, the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God. You know, if you were to do a, a, a concordant search, I won't. I won't give you numbers right now. I'll leave that for you to do on your own. You can do it on your Internet. You can do it if you have a a paper concordance at home, a printed one. If you were to look up the number of times the New Testament, not just the Old, talks about the kingdom of God, I think you'd be shocked how many times you see it show up on the pages. Matthew 24, 14 talks about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark 1, 15 talks about Jesus preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. The weapons of our warfare are not worldly weapons. The weapons of our warfare are the word of God, the gospel, that is, and prayer. And so what should our response be as believers to the kingdom of Christ, as we've just read about in Psalm 72? Well, the first thing, if you're not a believer, if you're still in your sins, if you're still outside of Christ and in your unbelief, repent of your sins and believe on Christ the Lord for eternal life. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice what he brings up there, the kingdom of God. It's everywhere. It's, you know, it's right under your nose in all these passages. We just don't think about it. He says, you can't even see it unless you're born again. It's not that kind of kingdom. 
His kingdom was not of this world. And so I asked this morning, are you born again by the spirit of God, as Christ asked Nicodemus? Are you trusting in Christ for the salvation from your sin? Second thing, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, if you believe in Christ and his kingdom, that he is reigning over all things, show it in how you live. Show it in how you live. Obey and serve Christ. Show by how you live your daily life in all aspects that you believe in, in the king, that you serve Christ who is the king. Seek the glory of his name in all things and how you live. As Jesus said in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If we call him Lord and don't do what he says, we are in some ways denying his lordship and kingdom before others. Our walk in following Christ must match our talk of Christ. If we're going to worship Christ as king, let's worship Christ as king with our lives. Third, pray for Christ's kingdom to come, even as we prayed this morning in the Lord's Prayer. Every time we pray that request in the Lord's Prayer, we are praying for the advance of the gospel and of his reign in the world. The Shorter Catechism has a section at the very end on the Lord's Prayer. This is what it says about that request. Question 102, what do we pray for in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come? In the second petition, it says, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So there's a twofold aspect, you could say, of, of the reign of Christ as taught in our shorter catechism. I believe it's scriptural. The kingdom of grace, that's right now. That's when the gospel is being proclaimed and sinners are being brought by God's grace into the kingdom and kept in it. And the kingdom of glory is when Christ returns, as we confessed in the Nicene Creed, from thence he shall come to judge. I, I skipped the part. From thence he shall come, what? In glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall know no end. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer in that second petition. Do we pray that way? I don't know about you, but in my not-so-great moments, I have my list. And my list is usually the gimme-gimmies. It's all about me and my family and things. The first thing I, don't, I pray for is not always that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done. Those things come first. They come even before our daily bread. We do pray for our daily bread, but we pray for God's kingdom much more importantly than that. And so I ask, do we, do we pray that way? May God change our hearts and teach us to pray that way as, as Christ taught. May Christ's glory, his kingdom, and his will be central to our prayers. And the fourth thing is, do we make the spread of his kingdom our priority? Do we support evangelism here at home in the work of the church and through foreign missions? Do we do that? You know, we always talk about the three T's, our time, our talent, and our treasures. Do we use those things to promote and advance the glory and kingdom of Christ. If, if not, I think we need to relearn the lessons of Psalm 72. Make, make those things our priority. What does Jesus say? Uh, he says, you know, seek ye first what? The kingdom of God. There it is again. And his righteousness and all these things, the things that we spend so much time worrying about, all these things will be what? Added to you. It's like he throws those in extra. You know, we think I have to seek those things first. God says, no, seek my kingdom, seek my the kingdom of Christ and all those things that you're so worried about. God will take care of you. He will add those things to you on top of the things that you're praying for that he tells you to pray for 
regarding Christ's kingdom. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings on earth, Revelation 1.5. He is, it says there in the next verse in Revelation 1, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has, here it is, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.